And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshipped. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Were you crying during the first hymn? Were you crying during the first hymn? That's what she asked me with a raised eyebrow on the front lawn two weeks ago after our Easter worship service. We had worshipped the Lord with glory and with splendor. The lilies were down at the altar. The pews were packed. Not any room left here in the sanctuary. Easter. And then a stranger, someone I'd never met in my life, came up to me and she said, Were you crying during the first hymn? The truth? I was a blubbering mess. I was crying so hard. I was fine through the first verse of Christ the Lord has risen today. And then Deborah had the bells come in. And it was just waterworks. I mean, I was crying. So I had to take my glasses off because I was worried I was going to have tears in my glasses. And I wouldn't be able to read the sermon later. In this. I was crying so hard. But I couldn't tell from her tone what she was really getting at with the question. Had I, had I been too emotional for her liking? I mean, was she embarrassed to see such a handsome pastor crying his eyes out in worship on Easter? I, I don't know. So I just stood there awkwardly thinking about how I should respond to her question. And then she said, it's okay. I was crying too. John the Revelator sees a vision. And what a vision it is. Myriads of thousands of thousands singing with a full voice. Worthy is the Lamb. John, he shares his sights with a dispirited and anxiety-ridden church. Easter has come and gone. The tomb is empty. But what happens next? Well, the people called church, they ran afoul of the powers and the principalities because they knew where the real power could be found in the world. And because they didn't go along with the rule of empire, they were persecuted, forsaken, punished. And what does God have to say? What does God have to show to a, to a church suffering such a song? It's a song. A song that spreads wider and wider until the entirety of the cosmos sings praises to the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Revelation is mostly just music. As a book, it's quoted in our hymnody and in our liturgy more than any other part of Scripture. And for good reason, it is filled with such wild and, and wondrous images. It literally talks about people singing over and over and over again. And if you spend any time among the people called Methodist, you start to think in hymns. You start to think in music. Listen. My sin, oh the blessed. Of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Karl Barth, my favorite theologian, after a full career of being a professor in the church, was asked, Karl Barth, what have you learned about the Lord? And he said, oh, it's an interesting question. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The whole of the gospel in a verse. We are the songs we sing. And it's been like this since the very beginning. The earliest disciples, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the sharing of scripture, and to the singing of songs. The gospel lection today, the text that's, that's paired up with this revelation text, it comes at the end of John's gospel. It's when Jesus returns after the resurrection, he finds Peter returning to his life of Fishing, and there's this tripartite questioning. Peter, do you love me? Peter has denied Christ three times now. 
Jesus gives him a, a chance to come back. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And frankly, it doesn't matter how Peter answers the question. It really doesn't, because Jesus is going to love Peter whether or not the love is returned. It's grace, all of it. Jesus will remain steadfast to Peter, whether Peter does or not. Jesus remains steadfast to us, whether we do or not. Love in the church means to be possessed by something else. We love only in the sense that we are beckoned, we are compelled, we are drawn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb is the only one worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And it is a strange, strange love. Like the cross, the love of God is, is a reminder of what God does, but also what we do when God shows up. That is, the cross is a sign of our salvation, but it is a proclamation of our complicity in the death of Jesus. Love is our freedom, but it's also a declaration that we don't deserve that freedom. Basically, God loves us, and there ain't nothing we can do about it. And to respond to God's love means, oddly enough, doing exactly what we're doing right now. Gathering week after week with the people we love, with the people who drive us crazy, perhaps even with people we hate, only because God has seen fit to call us God's friends. To respond to God's love means, oddly enough, even when we've sung these songs 10,000 times, when we feast on the bread and the cup 10,000 more, that we will still, we will still be overwhelmed by what God has done for us. Revelation, in particular this bit in chapter 5, it's all about singing, it's all about worship. It's about coming to the altar of God to be met by the one who makes a way where there is no way. We worship the only way we know how, we sing. We read, we preach, we offer, we receive. This is worship, it's who we are. We come to worship with the conviction that we are in the presence of God, that God is here, that God is meeting us somehow. Every week there's an air of an excitement, or at least there should be, in which we gather and we think to ourselves, I wonder, I wonder what God's going to do next. And yet to those outside the church, what we do here is indeed very strange. To those outside the church, we're just a bunch of people who get together and we sing some kind of popular, maybe unpopular songs. Someone reads from an old dusty book. Someone else makes remarks about that old dusty book that may or may not interest the people who are listening. And then everyone stands up to, to drink a tiny, tiny bit of grape juice. And we eat a really, really small piece of bread. It's strange. But it also changes things. And sometimes the thing that worship changes is us. A prayer is offered and it strikes us to the center of our heart of hearts and we know that we can't be what we once were. A sermon is delivered. And for some reason we hear it and we think, he wrote that just for me. And only for me. And still yet there are times when things happen in worship that changes us and we're changed in spite of what we're doing in worship. C.S. Lewis once said that he came up with the idea for his incredible book, The Screwtape Letters, during what he described as one very long and boring sermon. <laughs> I myself learned of the beauty of the Bible because we had a pastor when I was a kid who was not, let's say, as gifted from the pulpit as he was in other pastoral responsibilities. So on Sunday mornings, I grabbed that book that's in the pew ahead of you, and I just started flipping through it, and I fell in love. The most incredible book I'd ever read in my life. And then I found some parts, and I couldn't believe we let children read this stuff. But that's how I fell in love 
with the Bible. And more than a few of you have shared stories with me about sermons you remember hearing that didn't bring you to the throne of God. All they did was teach you that you needed to find a different church. At its best, and I mean at its very, very best, worship reminds us, begs us to realize that we, even we, are caught up in the myriads of the thousands of thousands in John's vision. Worship tells us over and over again that there is nothing we can do for good or for ill that will stop God from getting what God wants. Worship gives us Jesus. There's a story about an old seminary professor who would do interviews to see if candidates were prepared to go to seminary. And he would sit down with these, these young people who felt like they were called to the ministry, and he would ask the same question every time. He'd say, why should I join your church? Why, why should I join your church? And these candidates for ministry, they would say things like, oh, we have just the best community in the world. And the professor would say, well, I'm already in AA, and I have all the community support I need. So then the candidate would say, oh, well, we're engaged, engaged in a lot of mission projects. We're doing a lot of good for the community. And the professor would say, well, I'm, I'm a member of Rotary, and we already do a lot for the community. So then the candidates would talk about, oh, we have, the, we have the best music program in the world. You should come hear the music. And he'd say, well, I have season tickets to the local symphony. Why should I join your church? He said that in the decades and decades of recruiting for the seminary, not one candidate ever said anything about Jesus. Not once. We are not in the business of societal rearrangement. We are not paragons of community service. And we certainly don't hoard all the musical prodigies. We may have some of those gifts, to be sure. But if we're serious about being the church, then the only thing we really have to offer anyone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't have to have impeccable fellowship gatherings, though Methodists make better food than any other church I've ever encountered. We don't have to have world-transforming service opportunities, even though we're going out in the community just about every day of the week to do something. We don't even have to have per perfectly pitched singers, even though we do, in the choir, because we already have the difference that makes all the difference in the world. The difference has a name, and it's Jesus. So here's the shortest version of the longest story. Jesus the one whom we try to push away by hanging him on a cross, he shall reign. And in his reign he will gather every little creature in, the last, the least, the lost, the little, the dead, even us. And we will rejoice. We will sup at the meal that goes on without end. We shall worship in song and with voice. Singing, it's what we do. And we've been doing it since the beginning. Moses, Miriam, Deborah, David, Mary, the angels, Jesus, Paul, all of these people in the strange new world of the Bible, they sing. John Wesley himself, he, he was transfigured on a boat because he heard a group of Moravians singing in the midst of a storm. His brother Charles wrote some of the best hymns that are in our hymnal that other churches steal and use all the time. And that's why we sing. Even now, we sing when we are up and when we are down. We sing when all is well and when all is hell. We sing. The last word we sing is amen. Every living creature on earth sings to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, and they all say amen. Do you know what it means? It means yes. It means verily, verily, truly, truly, yes. It is a declaration, a decisive declaration about who we are, what we are doing, and what's being done to us. Every time God says amen, we say amen back. When God says yes, we say yes. 
number of years ago, I took a group of youth on a mission trip to Raleigh, North Carolina. And while we were there, one of our tasks was gathering at the Hillcrest Nursing Center every morning to gather in their activity room uh, to be there with residents. They had bingo cards and they had workout equipment, these little weights that they could lift up and down. And, and so we were asked, to, these youth and I, to, to go to the Hillcrest Nursing Center and to be there in the activity room every morning for a week. And as soon as we got there, we realized that perhaps the activity center was misnamed. Because when we got there, the residents who sat in the activity center sat there in silence, staring at the floor, staring at the wall, lost in the middle distance, no longer communicating to anyone about anything. So we tried, we pulled out all the bingo cards and we didn't get any takers. The youth put on a workout routine to a Michael Jackson song and it didn't even get a single toe tap. No matter what we did, it was as if we weren't even there. And frankly, it was like they weren't there either. I remember one of the employees pulling me aside and saying, don't worry about it, they're always like this. And then one morning, one of the girls, she found this old dusty hymnal in the corner. She picked it up and she started flipping through the hymns until she saw one she, she recognized and she started to hum it. And all the youth who were on that trip, they got up and they, they stood with her. And they looked over the hymnal together and they started to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. And all the eyes in the rooms, those that were previously locked on the floor or the wall or somewhere lost in the middle distance, they all turned to the group of youth who were standing in the middle of the room. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. And the residents, their chairs and in their wheelchairs, they started perking up. They started to pay attention. Some of them even started to, to move their mouths along with the words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Aides and employees from the whole nursing center started to gather in the doorways because they heard singing coming from a room that they had never heard singing come from. And they started to witness and watch this, this little miracle that was happening right in front of their faces. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Everyone, either humming singing along. Even those employees who were there in the hallway, they started to sing with us. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of hope and peace. And so with tears streaming and with voices ringing, every one of us there joined in that last verse, when we 
We've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We are the songs that we sing.